0: This morning, I want to continue to talk about our vision. Uh, what gets our hearts beating faster at St. Peter's Fireside? Why another church downtown? What are we for? This are the things I want to talk about this morning. Uh, at St. Peter's Fireside, our vision is to join God in the renewal of all things. That means we want to join God in spiritual renewal first and foremost, but then that will express itself in social renewal and cultural renewal and in and throughout our city That's what gets us excited because we believe Jesus is in the business of making all things new, that through him and through his people, we actually get glimpses of heaven intersecting with earth. And so we want to find those places. We want to find those moments where you can really say, there it is. The kingdom of God is at hand in a palpable way. Things are how they really were meant to be. And so we think that this sort of renewal begins in a community, a community just like this that is gripped by the gospel of grace. At our last preview service, I made the point that spiritual renewal is the basis of every other sort of renewal. The issues that our city faces like unaffordable housing, homelessness, loneliness and isolation, political scandals, these are social issues, but at their root, they are spiritual issues as they deal with who we, who we are how we understand our place in the world, how we understand our place with God. But when spiritual renewal takes place, it's not just in the ethereal realm. It's not just in the invisible realities. It actually produces tangible results, and it actually begins to change our social makeup. So when we say social renewal, what is it that we have in mind exactly? Social renewal is about order, justice, peace and wholeness being brought into every area of our shared lives in the city. And so it can, it can start in the very fabric of the city with our friends, our coworkers, our families, and how we relate to one another. But then it can actually extend into the lifeblood of the city, our jobs and our work, how we relate to our bosses, you know, how our, our work either gives or takes from the city. But it can also involve reforming systems that regulate society at large. How are the homeless cared for? How are we caring for the abused and the neglected? How do we influence health care or the government? These are the sort of things that social renewal concerns. And then the question then is, what role does a church have in any of these things? And more importantly, what does Jesus have to say about society? and, And is he at all interested in renewing it? Our text today, our second reading, Luke 4, 16-30, shows us that social renewal is bound up in spiritual renewal, but that Jesus cares a great deal about restoring order, justice, peace, and wholeness to society. So there's three things we learn from the text. The first is this. We all have a desire for lasting renewal. The second is that Jesus gives us a picture of what lasting renewal actually looks like. And then lastly, Uh, the text challenges us to respond to God's social renewal. So if you have your bulletins handy, uh, turn to, I think it's page 8, Luke 4, 16 through 30. Uh, We're going to walk through this text together. Important to note, Jesus is in Nazareth. This is his hometown. It's the Sabbath, and as was the custom of the Jews, he's gathered at synagogue with his community. And in the service, he's reading the scripture and he's interpreting it. And a scroll is handed to him from the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus opens the scroll, but to a very specific part of Isaiah. And it comes from Isaiah 61, which was our first reading this morning. Let's read this part. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And then Jesus rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, and then Luke writes in verse 20, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. An expectant silence must have come over the room. What is he going to say about this scripture? There's was a pin drop moment. You see, this part of Isaiah 61 was a loaded text. It was bound up with hopes and expectations. Jesus, in reading it, taps into a people's deep longing for renewal and for change, but not just any sort of renewal. They longed for a lasting renewal. One historian, he describes the hope of the people of Israel as the desire of the everlasting hills. They were waiting for everlasting renewal that would change everything permanently. And Israel, as a people and as a nation, they had had Highs and lows, but they had never seen anything steady and enduring in terms of renewal of their society. And since Isaiah recorded this prophecy in the 8th century, Israel had a rough go. They had been into exile and lost everything. But then they returned from exile and regained some things, but it just wasn't the same. Social issues abounded. They knew what it was to be a displaced people They had homelessness, orphans, widows, political corruption, you name it. This was a part of their social makeup. And then in Jesus' day, when he reads the scroll, on top of all these issues of their past, in the present, they are under the rule of Rome. They felt the weight of Caesar's fist and how it stood against the scriptural vision of what human flourishing should look like. There was heavy taxes that were levied against them. Corrupt rulers placed over their cities. Emperor worship endorsed throughout the empire. So Israel was an oppressed nation. And they were longing for freedom, for justice, for, for wholeness, for goodness to be restored. And in all of this, they clung to hopes that one day God would come and he would make all things new, that he would set things back to rights. And he had made promises to them. He had promised a good king who would come and bring this sort of change And their scriptures from from start to finish are just filled of this hope that one day peace and justice, goodness, kindness, this would reign over the world and it would be marked by a radical love of God and a radical love of neighbor. But then Israel also knew that they couldn't bring about this change themselves. They had tried and failed over and over and over again. Only God could bring it. And so Israel waited. And I think like Israel, we get that we want to see society made better. We get that we want to see lasting change. Over recent years, social justice has become a very popular thing. But when you take away all the glamour that we give to it, and you actually talk to people on the front lines of doing that sort of work in our city, you will hear one reoccurring theme, weariness. Well, they love what they do. They're constantly aware that they're underfunded, under-resourced, that the need is never-ending, and they constantly are just feeling the weight of that burden. And while they want to see our society change, and while they're encouraged about what they do, they know that they are just a small drop in the bucket of what will bring actual change. At the end of the day, the change they bring seems minuscule and unsustainable. In our society, we get the desire for something that's lasting, for good changes that will last. And even in our own lives, we have our own hurts, unresolved relationships with friends, broken families, You know these things that need to be mended. Take a whole city and multiply those problems, and suddenly we have this this hill of hurt that we can't overcome and this desire to see renewal and lasting change. So hold that longing in your heart, that desire to see good not just come and go, but to stay, not just for you, but for everyone. That's what Israel felt when Jesus read this text. That's what the people felt in the synagogue that morning. My question is, have you ever waited so long for something that the waiting broke you? When I asked Julia's dad uh, for permission to marry her, he was lying in his bed in his hotel room watching football, super awkward. So, so awkward. And I'm sure for him, too. He wasn't expecting this, this boyfriend guy to come into his bedroom and ask, can I marry your daughter? He's like, if I knew you were going to do this, I would have gotten up. Anyways, you want to know what was more awkward. When Julia had returned with her mom and her sister, who she kind of like finangled out of the hotel room from the van, family vacation, when they returned, her dad was so excited that he had announced, do you know that they're getting married? And Julia just kind of looked at me, like, OK. And now the pressure is on. <laughs> Julia's family knows we're going to get married. Julia and I have been talking about it. We've been going through premarital counseling. She knows I have the ring. She knows I have her dad's blessing. And she's waiting. And it's just building. And is today going to be the day? Is just running through her head. And the last week before I knew I was going to propose, uh, I'd like to say I was a gentleman about how impatient she was feeling, but I wasn't. This last week, I don't recommend this, guys. I psych proposed every day leading up to the real proposal. You know, like, I would, I would bend over romantically and then tie my shoe. I booked, like, a really nice dinner. I was like, it might be tonight. It was just, just terrible, terrible. <laughs> and uh, the night before I was going to propose, like, one more sleep. We're talking one more sleep. Julia just breaks down. She says, I can't take it anymore. No more fake proposals. More and more joking. People keep asking me, when are you going to get married? I don't even have a freaking ring on my finger, Alistair. It's not funny. It's not funny to me. It's not funny to anyone. Don't talk about it more. And she grabbed a pillow, put it on her face, and started screaming. Okay, that part's not true. But she did. She cried. And, And I thought to myself, oh, dear. And then I was thinking at the same time, perfect. At least the next day she totally didn't expect to get a proposal. And fortunately for me, she still said yes. Uh, Julia, she had only been waiting a couple of weeks. She had anticipation building and then dropping, and it broke her. Israel's been waiting for hundreds of years. And holding on to glimmers of hope. But if, if at any point of their shared history as a people, if they were at the point of breaking, this would have been it. This is why an expectant silence came over the room when Jesus read Isaiah 61. Jesus reads this passage of hope and expectation to a people that are longing to see that sort of passage come to fruition. So Jesus sits down and he lets them sit in that silence and expectation just a little longer. And then he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like the ultimate drop the mic moment. Like, boom, mind's blowing, you know, heart's racing. Jesus pretty much says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. The everlasting hills you desire, they're within reach. It has begun in and through me. God has started the time you've been hoping for and is fulfilling the promises you've been clinging to. You haven't been able to bring it about but I am bringing it about. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Drop the mic, shake the dirt off your shoulders, walk away, no encore. And so we're told in this text, Jesus is the one bringing this lasting social renewal. But we We have to ask then, what will this lasting social renewal look like? What is clear is this is fundamentally a work of the Trinity. God the Father sends the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, for a work of renewal. And you can summarize this work in one word, proclamation. Jesus proclaims. And so he's not coming with just good advice about how to set the world back to rights. He's coming with news. He's coming with fact about how it is going to be set back to rights. And so first, Jesus is sent by God in the power of the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. He proclaims good news. Mark, in his gospel, summarizes Jesus' proclamation of good news as this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God's kingdom, and when I say that, we mean the reality of God God reigning and there being no opposition to his goodness flowing in and through his people. His kingdom is coming in a palpable way in the person of Jesus. And the time at hand is the year of the Lord's favor, And this references a part of uh, the Old Testament that talks about a time when slaves were to be freed. Debts were to be canceled, regardless of if they had been paid at all. Land was to remain fallowed. Property was supposed to be returned to its original owners. And on top of it, no one was supposed to work for a year. How awesome is that? Year of the Lord's favor. But then Jesus, he takes this picture and he extends it further. He says, this is just a glimmer of how good The kingdom of God will be when it is at hand. He takes it further and he says, everlasting justice will prevail. Oppression will disappear. Peace and wholeness will will rule. All things will be put back to rights. His good news is that God's kingdom is intersecting with earth. But then he says in the text, this good news is to the poor. And last I checked, we're in the center of downtown Vancouver in UBC sitting in a theater with Thousands of dollars of equipment. So I feel like we should ask, who are the poor? And are we a part of the poor that Jesus is talking to? When Luke uses this term, the poor, he's not just envisioning uh, the economically poor or the spiritually poor. In Luke, people who are poor are anyone for a number of reasons, be it status in society or religious purity laws. That because of these things and their standing, they find themselves outside of God's people. We see this all over the Gospels. Jesus brings good news to prostitutes whose sexual impurity would have disqualified them from religious worship. Jesus brings the good news to tax collectors. Although they had high status in society, people despised them because of how they got that status through unjust gain and corruption. He brought good news to the diseased, both rich and economically poor were quarantined from the society beyond hope He brought good news to foreigners and immigrants but then jesus ultimately what he is doing is he's helping us recategorize what it means to be poor that we all find ourselves in need of god's favor that we can't leverage any position before god and so when jesus says I bring good news to the poor, he is talking about humanity as a whole, but especially people who have been estranged from God for various reasons. These are the recipients of his good news. The next thing is he's sent by God to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This term liberty uh, is literally release. Jesus comes to bring release. And it's used... In three senses in Luke, but the major one being uh, the forgiveness of sins. When you look at the Greek, it's actually the release of sins. That Jesus as the Savior, as the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, he releases people from the debt of sin against God and brings full atonement for that. He releases them from having to live estranged from God. This is a part of how Jesus brings proclamation of good news changes things. It's for the people who are on the outside, but then it also brings them back in. It brings them back home. So what does lasting spiritual renewal look like? Let's sketch it out. It's a justice that sets everything to rights. It's a wholeness being restored to all people that eradicates marginalization and social boundaries that divide. It's the obliteration of diseases that tarnish and cripple people that take away from the quality of their life. It's the reversing of all sorts of disorder within society. But all of this social renewal, it flows out of spiritual renewal. Jesus' good news, it gets to the deeper issues of the human heart. It involves the reconciliation of humanity with God. And so we see that as people are gripped by the gospel of grace, as they're renewed spiritually, the effect is that it changes society because they're changed. So then the question is, in this text, how, how do people respond to this social renewal, to God's social renewal? You know all this expectation, all this hope, in this person, a clear picture of what it's going to mean, how do people respond? Luke writes in verse 22, "And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, "Is not this Joseph's son?" Now it's easy to look at this question. Is it, isn't this Joseph's son?" and think that they've moved from marveling to skepticism. Especially because in the other Gospels, they ask that in that way. But here, I don't think that's what's going on. The response initially is positive. Like, these are gracious words. This is good stuff. You know, like, go us. Go Israel. But then they think, and this is Joseph's son. He's one of us. We're a favored people. We can leverage this for our own good. And this, this statement and this question from it, it reveals subtly that they're not so much concerned about Jesus's message as much as they are about how it can benefit them and give them status in society. So the, the question then is, who should benefit from this good news? And deeply ingrained in their mindset is that the Jewish nation should benefit. There's a bit of ethnocentrism going on here. They, they categorize the world into two groups of people, Israel, the Jews, and the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And they would often lose sight that God set them apart as a people, not for their own sake, not because they were special, but for the sake of reaching all people, that they were supposed to be a light to all the nations, and that through them, all the nations would come to know them, so that God is for the world, but he is just working through a particular people. They lost sight of this and thought they were privileged. And so the question is, what then will Jesus say? What will he do Verses 23 through 24, Jesus says, you don't realize this now, and I guess in brackets you could kind of say, like, you will in a minute, uh, but you're going to reject me. And I don't exist to be leveraged by you for your own gain. This good news, it's not just for you, it's for all. And then Jesus, he takes two stories out of their scriptures of their two favorite prophets, Elijah and Elisha. He does something so fascinating with them. He sets them up, and this is important. He sets them up by saying, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And right away, Israel is going to be on guard, right? Because Israel has this reputation for killing their prophets. And then in both of these stories, the prophets of Israel are acting outside of Israel in Gentile regions. Elijah, he's in Sidon. And while he's there, he cares for a widow. And in a patriarchal society, a widow would be the bottom of the totem pole. I mean, she would be in a complete place of need and vulnerability. And in a status and purity-based culture, she would be poor. She would be on the outskirts. Elisha, he brings cleansing not to any of the lepers of Israel, but to Naaman, the Syrian, a Gentile, the commander of an army that opposed them, an enemy. And though he's a general and has power and authority, he's a leper and he's a Gentile. And so in Jewish eyes, everything disqualified him from being in society or encountering the presence of God. And so when Jesus uses these two examples of Elijah and Elisha and the people that they're engaging with, he uses them to show that God's message of redemption and renewal came to those outside of God's people. came to the Gentiles. So here's a young Jesus. A Jesus they've known their whole lives, probably Joseph's boy, preaching as if the Gentiles, not the Jews, are the specially favored people of God. A few years ago, um, my cell phone provider, who I I won't name, uh, doesn't matter, I was in the States, you guys want to know Sprint, but um, they called me. And they said, we've got a great deal for you. Uh, Your plan is up, and so you can get a new phone for free. And I'm thinking... All right, maybe it's time for me to trade in my Nokia that I'm always playing Snake on and, and get a smartphone. They said, well, 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 the smartphones aren't exactly free. You know, They're $50. I was like, well, that's still pretty cheap compared to $300. I'll get it. And I'm so excited. I'm finally going to have a fancy phone. And I'm waiting in the mail for a week. You know, The expectation's building. It gets there. And of course, there's always the disappointment, like you got to plug it in and charge it for a day before you can use it. But then it's finally charged, and I turn it on. And all I can do is call people in text. None of the internet functions work. And I'm like, what is wrong with this phone? So I call Sprint, or the, the anonymous cell phone carrier. And Julia can attest, I'm always very pleasant with customer service people, especially when I feel wronged. And I, I said, my internet's not working on my phone. They said, oh, um, yeah, that's because you gotta add a data package, that'll be about $75 a month more. I have never gone from awe to feeling murderous in in such a small amount of time. I just, I couldn't believe that they duped me like that. Total sidebar, I complained for so long on the phone that I ended up getting a permanent fixed rate of like unlimited everything for $90 a month, which lasted forever, but now I'm in Canada. <laughs> the people in the, in the synagogue, the people in the synagogue, they thought Jesus was gonna reinforce their sectarianism, their elitism, he was gonna rally behind their ethnic identity, but he didn't. And this might be, you know, the world record of going from awe to murder in less than a minute. And their, their response is it's not justified. And and they get what Jesus is saying, and they hate him for it. It says they were filled with wrath. Why? Because he exposed their motives. He showed them how self-serving they were. He revealed their racism. He revealed their elitism. And that their sectarianism, it wasn't just misplaced. But it was actually in opposition to God's kingdom coming. And that God is for the very people that they are against. So how do they respond? They drive Jesus out of town and attempt to throw him off a cliff. And mysteriously, Jesus passes through their midst and went away. Now, Siegfried and Roy... You know, they can tame tigers without their perfectly manicured hair getting touched or or messed up. But Jesus, in his power and authority, he can pass through murderous crowds unharmed. Total sidebar. So the response to Jesus, it's not promising. On the one hand, it's selfish and ethnocentric. And then the second response is murders. They want to murder him. And this text, it should be calling us, it should be, we should be wrestling with it. How are we going to respond to God? How is God calling us to respond to him? First, the text tells us we can't leverage Jesus for our selfish gain. Jesus is not something you tag on to your cause or business or mission for your own benefit. He's not someone you can use to reinforce your negative stereotypes or your racism. We join in God's renewal. We join in what he's doing. We don't try to get God to join what we're doing. And and this text, the implication is that we have to deconstruct our boundaries of us and them. That we shouldn't be surprised if God takes us to places we don't want to go and that we end up working with people we don't want to work with. We can't leverage Jesus to make this community, for example, some better community than any other community in the world, that this community actually have to exist not for our own sake, but for the sake of the city, that we're called to love our city to life. Second, we have to, we have to grapple with who Jesus is and how he says change comes about. He's making huge claims. He's claiming God's spirit is upon him. He's making claims that he's actually God in the flesh, that he's God's son, not Joseph's son And he claims that this lasting change, it comes only through him. Which means we have to reorder our lives entirely around him if we want to be a part of lasting renewal. And that's why his good news sometimes elicits violent emotional responses. Because it means we have to bow our knees. It means that if he's Lord, we're not. And that it's not about what we get to do, but that we have to change our ways and adopt God's ways. And I, I get it. I think some of you, this point especially, you might take issue with. You might look at the good Jesus is doing be like, yeah, I like guess society needs that. Like, that's good. That's good stuff. But this, only through him, only through Jesus, it's a little extreme. But if you think about it, just rationally, like the type of change we're talking about, not just fleeting changes that come and go, but everlasting change. Change that is for everybody's benefit, not just the people we want to see benefit. That change could only ever be possible if there is a good and everlasting being who would bring that sort of change about. The desire for the everlasting shows that we desire such a being to exist. And if you're if you're here and you're still trying to figure out, is Jesus who he said he was? Is he really... Lord, is he really God in the flesh? Is he really Savior? Let me say, take as much time as you need to figure out that question. But no longer than necessary. and Don't put it on the back burner. Because ultimately the question is this. If Jesus is really who he claimed to be, if the Spirit of the Lord really is upon him, will will you join him in what he's doing? Or will you continue in your own ways? Third, we, we have to adopt a healthy view of how social renewal comes about. I think we can look at a passage like this and be somewhat discouraged. Jesus says, this is fulfilled in me. And then we look at the world and we ask, is it really fulfilled? They're still blind. People are still oppressed. People are still hurting. How can Jesus have said that these these words were fulfilled? A healthy view of social renewal grasps that we live in between two times. That Jesus appeared and he inaugurated the kingdom of God. And that he will return and bring it to completion. And that we live in between those two things. That he's begun a process of renewal that we get to be a part of now. We get glimpses of how it will be eternal. But it won't fully be here until Jesus returns. And is inaugurated over the world as the king of all. And so I don't want you to think that just because we desire everlasting renewal, that we can't start to have some of it here and now. That we just have to put it off until, you know, one day we're in the clouds. That that social renewal through spiritual renewal, it takes place here and now. And while the Christian church has a spotted past, we see through it the very first works of social justice, the invention of hospitals, orphanages, education systems, legal systems, the foundations of modern science, just to name a few things. Justin Welby, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was recently interviewed by the Telegraph. And the interviewer said, the church is good at talking, which all of you are like, yes, Alistair, you've been talking for almost half hour, but not actually at doing things to improve the social order. And like a good Brit, Mr. Welby responded, rubbish. It is one of the most powerful forces of social cohesion, Did you know that each month in the UK, all the churches, roughly half of the numbers being Anglican, contribute 23 million hours of voluntary work outside what they do in church? And it's growing. There are now between 1,200 and 2,000 food banks in which the church is involved. Ten years ago, there were none. There are vicars, pastors, living in every impoverished area in the country. This springs out of genuine spirituality. And I really like this next part. We're not just rotary with a pointy roof. When we join God in the social renewal of our city here and now, what we're actually doing are getting glimpses and tastes of what's to come. We know it's somewhat fleeting, but there's glimmers of eternity in what we're doing when we join God in the renewal of our city. Lastly, A healthy view of social renewal grasps that Jesus brings it about by reversal. When Jesus renews things, the blind see, the broken are healed, the imprisoned are free. And he brings it about in such unexpected ways, commands like love your enemy as yourself, and in his own actions, suffering in the place of others. You see, It's not enough just to deal with social issues on the surface level. When Julia was in college, uh, university, when, when she was there, she took a class. And they were discussing abuse issues. And a question came up, how do we get women out of abusive situations? And her professor brilliantly responded, it's the wrong question. The question is, how do we change the man who would hit a woman? That's a hard question. I mean, you can come up with education plans. You can, you can try to make sure everyone has a good family and that they don't perpetuate abuse that they receive from their father. I mean, there's lots of things you can try, but at the end of the day, we still don't know how to change the human heart. Only Jesus has the power to change our hearts. Only Jesus has the power to help love reign in our hearts rather than our proclivity to be selfish or do broken things. Only Jesus can meddle and put back to rights our soul. So we desperately need spiritual renewal for social renewal to last. And that's how the gospel works. Paul writes, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That God came for people to reconcile that relationship. Because when you fix the people, you fix the society. And when the proper leader and king is over society, there is no more worry about oppression and despair, and disease. And so the cross is the ultimate act of reversal. It looks like Jesus has been rejected like he predicted. It looks like he's defeated. But in it, it's the victory of God, the ultimate reversal. Dead things come back to life. Sin loses its power over people. The spirit that was upon Jesus is now available to his people. And so Jesus, he, he uses reversal to bring about renewal in unexpected ways, but then he continues to bring renewal in the world here and now through surprising ways, through us, through his church. This is God's plan A. There's no backup plan. That The social renewal we're talking about, it is this community's responsibility. Not to do it just for the sake of doing it, but to see it as a product of the gospel transforming each of our lives individually, and defining our shared identity as a community together. And we do this while anticipating the final reversal of all, that when when the old heavens and the old earth pass away, and Jesus brings the new heavens and the new earth and says, Behold, all things are new. So I want to say, if if your heart beats a little faster we're seeing our city made better, if you long for spiritual renewal in your life, but you also want to impact your spheres of influence, you want to see our city get better. If you want to search for and find the places where God's presence seems palpable and where Jesus is bringing his powerful reversal, let's lock arms together and join God in the renewal of Vancouver.